0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning, at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. Professor Annalise Orlett graduated from New York City Public Schools in Brooklyn, did her graduate work at NYU, and is a member of the faculty at Dartmouth. She teaches history, women's and gender studies, and Jewish studies. Professor Orlec has written four books, including Common Sense and a Little Fire, Women and Working Class Politics in the United States, 1900 to 1965, which sets the sweatshop and strike stories she heard as a child into a larger historical context. Her newest book, Storming Caesar's Palace, How Black Mothers Fought Their Own War on Poverty, explores the war on poverty through the eyes of the poor mothers themselves, This afternoon, she will be presenting her talk, What If Poor Women Ran the World? Rethinking the War on Poverty. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for welcoming me back. It's really nice to be here. And um, I was very influenced, not only by my teachers in the New York City public schools, uh, it was absolutely my high school history teachers um, who turned me into a historian, there's there's no question, and, and my father. But he got help from my, from my high school history teachers, and also influenced by uh, Herb Gutman's commitment to try to get information about regular people into the classroom. <laughs> uh, because for, for some reason, it was easier in the beginning to get information about average people's lives into, I think, the college curriculum than it was to filter down into high school and middle school and, and, uh, and elementary school. And uh, it really seems like that's changing. And that's... Uh, something that that I'm really happy about so I guess what I want to begin with is by saying that any time you try to do the history of women it's surprising how little is available in the way of sources even when you're talking about a relatively recent period any time you do the history of people of color the same is true but when you overlay those two identities with class and you're talking about poor women of color it is shocking it is truly truly shocking the women that I'm about to talk about are women who were born in the 1930s who were activists in the 1960s 70s and sometimes into the 80s but until recently and now as you see I I put a bibliography at the end There's beginning to be a really nice literature about the welfare rights struggle. But until very, very recently, we knew so little about their lives. So there are reasons for that. And one reason for it, quite frankly, is something that all of you are very well aware of, which is the deeply, deeply entrenched stereotypes of poor, uh, poor women of color, poor mothers of color, poor single mothers. I would go out on a limb and say that they are perhaps the most despised group in our society and one thing that's really interesting to me and you could probably do this with your students wherever I go if I ask people to spit out the stereotypes I get the same ones I know in advance you know what people are going to say and sometimes the students are too embarrassed at first to say them because they're embarrassed to admit that they hold them but that's perhaps the single biggest obstacle in teaching about the subsistence struggles of poor mothers in the 1960s and 70s, otherwise known as the welfare rights movement. The very phrase welfare rights sets people's hair on end. So I'd like to to frame it, to think about it as a subsistence struggle. After all, a struggle about hunger, a struggle about, in the words of Ruby Duncan, who uh, I'm about to introduce you to, the leader of the Las Vegas welfare mothers movement that my book is about, her politicization came because she needed shoes for her children to start the school year. And she realized that within the welfare system, there actually were, there were possible grants that would give mothers enough money to buy new shoes for their children to start the school year. So what we're talking about are really basic subsistence. These are movements that are about food and hunger, hungry children, barefoot children, they're about basic medical care, about communities that had no medical care into the 1960s and 70s. They're about basic literacy, about communities that had no libraries Right into the 1960s and 70s. And yes, they are about another concept that's more controversial and that maybe we, we can talk about, which is the welfare rights movement's belief in an adequate minimum income that in the richest country on earth, people shouldn't be allowed to fall below a certain standard. And they certainly shouldn't be allowed to fall below that standard if they had kids living in the home. So those are the basic goals of this movement. But you, you can imagine that they too fought against these stereotypes that make it so difficult for us to learn about, to talk about, to teach about the history of this particular group of people. So I'm going to talk about some of those stories in a moment and my book is basically about Las Vegas so a lot of this will be about Las Vegas. However, one of the key leaders of the National Welfare Rights Movement, one of the really inspiring figures and, and one of the most successful organizers in terms of bringing together women across the country and reading the Riot Act, as I'll show you shortly, to Congress, was the leader of the New York City welfare rights movement, Beulah Sanders. Beulah Sanders was, in her 30s, she was, as she was described by uh, one reporter in the New York Times in 1969, uh, she was you know, fresh enough from the kind of manual labor that uh, so many black women migrants from the South did that the muscles were still bulging in her arms. She, this was a woman who had worked and who had done hard physical labor. Uh, She was a single mother, and she was also an anti-war activist because she really saw the disproportionate draft of young men of color, poor young men, poor black men, whose mothers were being told that they were leeching off the system and um, whose sons were being sent not just to Vietnam in greater numbers than other populations, but to the front lines, to the most dangerous places in Vietnam in greater numbers than other populations. And so for Beulah Sanders, the New York movement was about all those things that I just talked about, but it was also, uh, it was also about fighting against the war. It was also about saying, we are not going to sacrifice our sons until you say we are worthy of a certain piece, a piece of the pie the same as everyone else. So where does the, the welfare rights movement come from? The welfare rights movement really begins in the early 60s, actually with the New York City Initiative as well. It's, there's an a, a anti-juvenile delinquency program, an experimental program in the Lower East Side called Mobilization for Youth. And Mobilization for Youth is based on this idea called opportunity theory. And it's coined by a New York City couple of sociologists, Richard Cloward and Lloyd Olin. And the basic idea is one of the things that's denied poor people, particularly poor young people, is adequate opportunity. That if you gave them opportunities to help improve life in their communities, they would run to do it. And that that would be a really effective anti-juvenile delinquency Program. So Mobilization for Youth starts as um, a small program with an experimental grant from John Kennedy's Anti-Juvenile Delinquency Initiative. And it's based on this idea that would come to be enshrined in the 1964 Economic Opportunity Act of maximum feasible participation by the poor themselves. You don't just shove programs down people's throats, you don't do social engineering from the top down, although there was some of that by all means. But what you do is you involve people from the bottom up. And by involving people from the bottom up, you have to have a certain belief in the wisdom of those people. And that they know, as these women would say, uh, later on in their lives, Ruby's just 17 in this picture, that they know what's best for their communities, that they know what's best for their children, and that they have already achieved the really almost impossible task of trying to support a family on on next to no income. So let me tell you a little bit about about Ruby and some of the women that I wrote about in Las Vegas and who you'll meet, whose lives you'll, you'll get to know if you read this book, and give you the sense that the other two leaders of the welfare rights movement, the two biggest national leaders, Johnny Tillman of Los Angeles and Beulah Sanders of New York, come from that same migrant background that brought black and white Southerners to northern cities in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, and in this case, brought a group of people from the Louisiana Delta to a brand new city in the desert, Las Vegas. So these are the last sharecroppers. Ruby grew up in a place called the Ivory Plantation in the Louisiana Delta, and they were still sharecropping into World War II. Ruby The book begins uh, with a fantasy that Ruby had. It's the last day of World War II, and she kind of has a sense that everybody's celebrating all over the country, but her life more closely resembles that of her enslaved great-grandmother than it does uh, other modern young girls her age. She's 12 on the last day of, of World War II, and she lays down in the field, and she just has this fantasy that she's gonna get out of there, and she can stop picking cotton. Now, all through, the Louisiana and Mississippi Delta, cotton is still being picked at the end of World War II. There's still people who grew up in the same shotgun houses that their enslaved ancestors had lived in. Now, some of you may have read um, Nick Lehman's The Promised Land. The mechanical cotton picker comes in after World War II and people are thrown off these plantations as they're no longer needed. Uh, And some of the shotgun houses are literally put on the backs of trucks and taken into towns But for a lot of these girls, a lot of these young women, the dream is just the best thing they can hope for their children, as Alversa Beals, one of the other Las Vegas women you'll see a picture of momentarily, said, the best thing, the only thing at that point is that they not have to pick cotton. So you gotta start with that sense of who this this group are, who, who this group of the poorest of the poor are you know, in, in these years after World War, World War II. So this is the first picture ever taken of Ruby because nobody had a camera on the ivory plantation. She goes to the county fair and there is a, a booth where the first picture is, is taken of her. She's 17 years old and she will shortly be raped, cutting through the cotton fields, conceive her first child and have to get out of, have to get out of this small town environment and to begin to imagine Going to someplace better. Now, migrations, a lot of these southern migrations to northern cities, New York included, Chicago included, Las Vegas included, were chain migrations, just like the overseas migrations. People came from particular towns. The town of Tallulah, Louisiana, Fordyce, Arkansas, and Greenville, Mississippi, headed to Las Vegas. Greenville was big enough, though, that it also created almost an entire neighborhood in Chicago where people said, you, you know, I had a student actually who grew up with a you know Mississippi accent though she had never lived in Mississippi she just lived in a neighborhood in Chicago where absolutely all of the older people had that same accent so they begin to think of getting out and the first place they go in these migrations <coughs> is the to towns here's Emma Stampley this is later she's still this migration is still going on people were still picking cotton and farming into the 1960s and Emma Stampley's first Attempt the first step for the migration is to bigger southern towns, and so she heads to Vicksburg, Mississippi, where she can get work in the lumber industry, which is largely a man's world. But she has an abusive husband. She cannot get birth control because of the plantation system that Robert Kennedy discovers in 1966 when, as the head of he's a New York Senator, is the head of the subcommittee on poverty and malnutrition. They, they investigate in the South, and they find that this is a medical system that basically operated in the service of the plantations. And as one doctor they interviewed said, you know, after the age of 12, if a black girl didn't have babies every couple of years, then, you know, they would assume there was something wrong with her. For Emma Stampley, she could not get her doctor to give her birth control, even after she left her abusive husband. She was told it was a sin to leave her husband because she was Catholic, and it was a sin to use birth control. So she did what she could to support her eight children, which was to work in this extremely dangerous logging mill. The other women, these other migrants that I'm talking about, grow up in Tallulah on these cotton plantations picking. Ruby used to say she was a slacker because she could only pick 150 pounds a day. Alversa Beals, her neighbor down the road in Sunhammer, Louisiana, could pick 300. I'm telling you these little details because these are the people who will soon be told that they're leeches who can't work, who never worked, right? who are are parasites leeching off the system. Lumber mill workers, people who grew up in the cotton fields and who try to get out. And the first place they try to get out to is places during World War II where there's war work. So Brooklyn is one site, Brooklyn Navy Yards, because the federal government is one of the few places that will hire black workers for decently paid labor. And another place is the munitions plant and the beginning what will ultimately become the Trinity nuclear test site in the desert outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And so black workers begin to migrate to Nevada during the war to try to find something better than the cotton fields. And defense contractors come from the US government. They go down to the cotton fields during the war and say, you know, here we have these great options for you. Come work in our defense plants. And when they get there, you might think that they will be put up in the same housing and the same conditions that white defense workers are put up in. Um, This is housing for uh, black workers who come to work in uh, Las Vegas and uh, in the Henderson Munitions Plant during 1942. And you might say, well, there were sudden migrations during the war. A lot of people came into a lot of places really quickly. There probably were other places that looked like this. Uh, the great Harlem Renaissance writer Bon Bontemps called them mud towns, And he talked about the disappointment of black southern migrants when they finally got to LA, to Las Vegas, to Richmond, California, and to places outside of, of the big industrial older cities like New York at seeing where they were expected to live. Uh, the women from the women that I interviewed for the Las Vegas books said people were living in chicken coops without doors with carpets to keep out the desert storms, carpets for doors. The conditions were pretty dire. Okay, so this is 1942. What's really shocking is this is 1962, okay? You think of Las Vegas in 1962, you think of the rat pack, right? Sammy Davis Jr. and, you know, Joey Bishop and Dean Martin and, you know, the sands and all the lights. These are the people who worked on the strip. This is how they lived. Okay, so this is West Las Vegas in 1962, very little indoor plumbing, people living in trailers, people living in cars. The estimate was that 88% of the housing was, com- was so substandard as to be completely illegal, even by housing code standards at that moment. This is how people are living. Now, you do need to multiply this by every major war uh, defense plant city to which black workers migrated during the Second World War. Because one of the things that happened is that the city fathers would decide, if we don't build them permanent housing, maybe they'll go. Right? Maybe they'll just leave at the end of the war. And so you have people into the 1960s living like this. This is what people called the neon shadow. Right? This is what you can't see from the lights of the strip but it's a short drive up the strip to what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard and left turn. This is not at all far. If you can walk far, this is walking distance from the famous Las Vegas casinos. You know, again, similar things in Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, similar things in in Richmond, California where people described trying to walk to work through mud so thick that they would literally get it stuck around their thighs just trying to get out of their houses uh, to where, where they could work. So these are the conditions out of which the anti-poverty movement grows. Same year as these pictures were taken, Michael Harrington published a book called The Other America. And The Other America is full of stories of people living like this in many parts of the United States in a very prosperous moment, in a very prosperous moment in American history. What happens is that the book is syndicated in the New Yorker. It reaches John F. Kennedy's desk. And it causes a little bit of a revolution. Because one of the things that Harrington talks about is not just the physical after effects of this kind of life. And we'll get into that in a moment. Because what what people start to find what Bobby Kennedy finds as New York Senator when he starts traveling around the country investigating poverty is malnutrition so severe that people have rickets, that they have open sores on their body, that the, the level of poverty in this country is way beyond what anyone saw because the neon shadow is kind of national. It's not just the strip to the west side in Las Vegas. It's you know one neighborhood to the next uh, in New York. It's Rapid City, South Dakota, to the Sioux Reservation. It's just the other side. It's, it's um, Mill Creek in Kentucky. It's old, old mining towns where there's this deep, entrenched, and long-standing poverty. But the difference in places like LA and New York and Las Vegas, where the welfare rights movement takes root in the 1960s, is that these are centers of migration. And migrants are basically hopeful people. Immigrants and migrants leave for something better. They believe they're going to find something better. And as bad as this is, they do. As bad as this is, they do. These are folks who are making $2 a day in the cotton fields, $2 a week, excuse me, who are suddenly making $9 a day, which doesn't sound like a lot of money in the 1960s, and it wasn't. But to some of these women, it it seemed like a princely sum. They were amazed. The other thing about that they found in places like New York and LA and Las Vegas, and especially Las Vegas, was a very powerful labor movement. And a labor movement that, although it would have to be pushed later on to really um, bring black people into positions of more influence and jobs that would pay better, they were, this was a labor movement that, distinct from most other parts of the labor movement, was willing to organize black workers in those days. And so they brought them in, and so the labor movement is the beginning of this political consciousness. Okay, Ruby Ruby Duncan is asked, she's working in a hotel, and she's left an abusive husband too. She's got seven kids, and she is asked to work nights just at, at the last minute, right? She's told she can't leave at the end of the day of her hotel shift. And these this hotel, these hotel shifts are hard to clean in upwards of 30, 40 rooms a day, sometimes more in certain cases, if conventions were coming in these women were very strong, as we've talked about, physically strong women. Uh, Mary Wesley, one of the other people in this movement we'll talk about, said, you know, she said, later on she worked on a garbage truck, she got a union sanitation job, and she said after cleaning hotel rooms, working on a garbage truck was easy. She felt like, you know, she could physically handle that. This almost broke her down. And it broke many of them down, this kind of intense physical labor. But, Ruby was able to say to the housekeeper, head housekeeper who said, you have to stay the night. She said, I can't, I got my seven kids at home. I don't have daycare, I gotta go home. And she said, well, you go, you, know, you stay or don't come back. And Ruby thought, wait a minute, I belong to a union. And she said to the housekeeper, it's not slavery times no more. I don't have to do this. And indeed, she found the next day that Sarah Hughes, one of the first black women business agents for a major American union, came in and argued for her. And she kept her job. So, so the first is this, is this consciousness, this class consciousness, this union consciousness, this understanding that they weren't in the South anymore. And that's how Ruby described it. She said the problem with this housekeeper is that she didn't understand she wasn't in the South anymore. Right? But, but I knew it. So again, as bad as it is here, it, it is better. And it feels like you know it's, it's improving. Well, what happens with this housing, and this happens in cities all over the country, is that there is a demand for improved housing. And the federal government starts building the first round, well, it's the second round, first round of public housing is in the 30s and 40s for war workers, almost all white. It was a very respectable thing, public housing in those days. Then they start building in the 50s. And what they do is they pair it with highway money and with highway construction. So the people who live in the west side and who, the, who live in neighborhoods, black workers, these migrants who lived in these terrible neighborhoods that finally get paved, finally get paved streets, finally get running water, finally get street lights, and finally get somewhat habitable housing are suddenly surrounded by freeways. And that's what happens in Las Vegas. They call it the concrete curtain. So even though they're a stone's throw from the strip, there's a concrete curtain that's built around them, and they are kept out of the rest of the city, except to work. As S.E. Henderson puts it, it's a different kind of plantation. They want us out there during the day, and then at night they want us to be you know, good little plantation workers and go home and be out of sight. But the war on poverty means that suddenly poverty is being discussed. Robert Kennedy picks up where his brother left off. Lyndon Johnson picks up where his slain predecessor left off. In January of 1964, he uses his presidency to declare unconditional war on poverty in America. And it's a very very radical statement, the 1964 Economic Opportunity Act, which he manages to pass through Congress because it actually talks about the federal government's responsibility to promote opportunity for all Americans. And it reaffirms, it reaffirms the 14th Amendment and this right to equal treatment under the law. And what you get is the, the beginning of the investigation of these poverty pockets. Well, here Bobby Kennedy is walking into a New York hallway full of stinking garbage that is just not being picked up and not being picked up and not being picked up and he begins to chart substandard housing and living conditions all over New York City. He's also traveling to the southern states, looking at healthcare, looking at hunger. You know when you have something being discussed by the president, by the senate, it gets in people's minds and poor people start talking about it too. So Alversa Beals, one of the things that the war on poverty creates is it creates 1100 community action programs. Local governments, local activists put together projects to improve their communities, which include the quote unquote maximum feasible participation of the poor themselves. So Alversa Beals is sitting in one of these new housing projects surrounded by the concrete curtain in Las Vegas. And she gets a knock on the door in 1967. And it's a community organizer hired under the Community Action Program who says, you got to get out. And as she put it in a a great use of English I really like, she said, you got to betterify yourself. For your kids, for your kids. And she said, it was the first time I heard the word. She was told, other mothers are doing it. They're starting to march. They're starting to protest. And you got to do it too. So where are these other mothers marching? They begin to look and they see. In 1966, Beulah Sanders takes 1,500 New York welfare mothers to the steps of Mayor Lindsay's office. And they say, you know what? It's the 20th century. We need to be allowed telephones their caseworkers had decided the telephones were a luxury that welfare families were not entitled to. Okay, 1966. This is not the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s. This is in New York City. One of the things that they realize and that they learn, one of the things that the War on Poverty creates is the Legal Legal Services Corporation, excuse me. And the Legal Services Corporation inspires a generation of young poverty lawyers Who go through a lot of these welfare laws and start telling welfare mothers what their rights are, and one of the things they find, as I mentioned earlier with Ruby, is they find they have a right to shoes, they have a right to special clothing allotments. Nowhere does it say you can't have a telephone. Nowhere is that in the rules, right? What they're dealing with here are some of those stereotypes we talked about earlier. Welfare mothers are wasteful. Welfare mothers are, you know, they're using taxpayers' money for stupid luxuries, like a telephone. Right? You're a single mom, your kids are going to school, they have no way to reach you, you have no way to reach them, but a telephone is a luxury. And they begin to get angry. So Mayor Lindsay, who is in fact would become an advocate for greater poverty funding, um, at that point withdraws and he says, well, the way not to see the mayor is to demand it. And so he doesn't see them. And in 1967, a group of, of women similar to these, a, an Arkansas migrant to Los Angeles named Johnny Tillman, a chemistry professor who leaves Syracuse University named George Wiley, Beulah Sanders, and a bunch of other folks, welfare mothers from across the country meet, and they decide to create something called the National Welfare Rights Organization. And there are hunger marches all over the country. There are marches on state capitals. Father Gropi in Milwaukee occupies the capital in Madison, in an occupation that looks very much reminiscent of what we just saw, Mm -hmm. except because this is a bunch of welfare mothers seen as threats and because black people's militancy in general is seen as a threat in 1966, 67, they're escorted out at the tip of bayonets. They are thrown out of there. And the more they're thrown out, the angrier folks get and the more they start to talk about occupying. So the the, the the senator in charge of the US Ways and Means Committee in Washington, is a senator from Louisiana, the home state of these women named Russell Long. And Russell Long is well known for calling welfare mothers brood mares. So Johnny Tillman and Beulah Sanders decide they're going to lead a broodmare stampede in the state capital and they storm in, in the federal capital, and they storm in demanding to, to testify, to talk about poverty from their perspective. And as she puts it, there's Beulah. Everybody from President Nixon on down is talking about us. Everyone has their own plan on what to do with welfare recipients, okay? And here she actually is speaking to Senator James Eastland of of Mississippi. She says, the only thing you can really do is get up off your 17th century attitudes, give poor people enough money to live decently, and let us decide how to live our own lives. And she then insisted it be admitted into congressional testimony that James Eastland himself, the powerful US senator from Mississippi, had in the previous year received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the US Department of Agriculture on his extensive lands not to grow cotton. So one of the things that, that these mothers start to do is they start to question what constitutes welfare, right? And, and, and what constitutes waste? In the aftermath of Martin Luther King's assassination, There's a march on Washington very shortly thereafter. Here you have Johnny Tillman, there's George Wiley. Johnny Tillman is the Arkansas migrant from LA who becomes president of the National Welfare Rights Organization and galvanizes the LA movement. George Wiley is the chemistry professor who becomes kind of the the educated face of the movement. And behind her, you can see Ethel Kennedy, both Ethel Kennedy, who was about to lose her husband, and Coretta Scott King, who just had, uh, came to this march and spoke. On behalf of what Johnny Tillman called mother power. And what Johnny Tillman started to talk about is a little different from what Sanders started to talk about. Johnny Tillman started to talk about the idea that motherhood itself, mothering work, was valuable work. Mothering work was economically valuable. She said, if you take apart all the tasks mothers do, you know, from Laundering, to psychological counseling, to cooking, to cleaning, and you you figured what it would cost to pay someone to do each of those things, you begin to have a sense of the economic value of motherhood. And she had an interesting pitch. She pitched herself to middle-class white women in the League of Women Voters, who actually got her point. She said, mothering work is devalued across our society. If you start to value motherhood, we hardly look like leeches, we look like people trying to be decent mothers. And as she said, if you devalue our motherhood, you devalue all motherhood. And she has a fairly powerful argument there. Um, And interestingly enough, at a moment when they have a really hard time getting support from the mainstream civil rights movement, they meet, Buell Sanders and Johnny Tillman meet with Dr. King shortly before his assassination when he's beginning to turn to economic issues um, and to mobilize the poor people's movement. And it's kind of an uncomfortable meeting, because the ministers are used to being the ones talking. And they're used to women being the ones listening. And so finally, Johnny Tillman actually cuts him off. And she says, if you're here to listen, then listen. And King, in one of his more humble moments, says, you're right, Mrs. Tillman. I apologize. You know about your lives. I don't. I am here to listen. But King doesn't live much longer. And the mainstream civil rights movement, with the exception of Reverend Abernathy, is reluctant to ally with these women. And the feminist movement, the white-led feminist movement, the student movement, they all kind of have their own things going on. So there are really, interestingly, are only two strong sources of, of allegiance, at least at first, that these women find. One is these surprising suburban white housewives Middle class housewives who announced that they're going to, in 1968, they're going to go on a welfare diet. They're going to they're feed their families for a week on the amount of food, on the amount of money that welfare mothers get to, to, to support their children. And what they find, and one of the really articulate um, speakers about this, a woman named Guida West, I didn't, she's the first uh, chronicler of the National Welfare Rights Organization. I didn't put her book down there. It came out in 1980, but it's a great one. She says, I found that my children couldn't concentrate in school by mid-morning. I found that my children had headaches by the end of the school day so that they couldn't do homework. And I found that the food that I did give them was so, it was high in sugar, it was high in fat, and all I could afford to give them was junk. And so you begin to get this alliance and, and this national discussion about hunger. And in 1968, CBS runs a documentary called Hunger in America. And hunger in America is very shocking to the nation, again, to see what's going on. In New York City, there is talk of long, hot summers. 1968, the New York legislature, even though um, the mayor is calling for uh, greater resources, the New York legislature cuts off those special grants for, for welfare families. It also begins, instead of giving housing allowances it begins putting people up in 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 the famous welfare hotels right these rehabbed you know rat infested hotels and um, you begin to get real militants going on you begin to get a period of sit-ins in many places across the country in new york city you see here 70 mothers and children this is sylvia hunt their leader who move into and announce they will not stop living in the human resources administration building because the welfare hotel that they had been uh, given to live in was unsanitary, it had been uh, deemed so by, by Senator Robert Kennedy and his commission, but no further news had been given to them about housing. Okay, and you begin to get direct action too in Las Vegas. What happens in Las Vegas is that, even though you get you get the election of a Democratic governor, but he, like many Democrats, decides he's gonna prove he's not soft on welfare, and he appoints a a state welfare director who is a disciple of California Governor Ronald Reagan and who believes that we need to begin cutting back the welfare rolls. And so he announces in January of 1971, because he can do it in Nevada, but he sends news about this to all 50 state welfare administrators, encouraging them to do the same. He cuts off one-third of welfare recipients in the entire state overnight entirely just cuts them off he cuts he slashes to the bone the checks of the of another third and the final third um, he actually gives a few pennies an increase so that he can provide some cloth over the fake argument that this is really about providing more funding to the truly needy as opposed to those who were cheating and those who really weren't needy so by this point The welfare mothers in Las Vegas, who have been approached by organizers, been hearing about welfare activism in other places, decide they want to take a national stand. And they say, where better to prove the hypocrisy of this system than the Las Vegas Strip, where at that moment in 1971, bettors were wasting, pouring $17 million a year down the drain. I don't even know what the number is now. But they decide that they are gonna shut down the Las Vegas Strip. And, and they're very smart in their decision to do this because they recognize that casino owners, one of the reasons the union took hold there is because you don't want to stop the flow of cash for even one minute, right? you would never stopped gambling in Vegas. So um, they recognize that casino owners will possibly put pressure on state authorities to stop these welfare cuts. So Ruby appeals for national attention. She gets it, there's Dr. Abernathy, Jane Fonda, comes to march with them. And what's really interesting is that this is kind of a version. In my first book, I write about poor people demonstrating in New York City in the 1910s. something I am going to talk about a lot this week on the 100th anniversary of the Triangle Fire. And they find that the only way to get the police to stop beating them with clubs is to have wealthy women march on the, the, the picket lines with them. Well, this is their version of it. Jane Fonda marches, Abernathy, Dave Dellinger, Dr. Spock, Donald Sutherland. They have very famous people marching with them as a way of preventing, because you know, this, Las Vegas is still run by the mob in those days. They have reason to believe that they could very well be attacked. OK, so here we have them. They're marching on the strip. And they do get national attention, right? they get what they know remember this is a state that at this point has legal gambling right that that basically fleeces people out of their money legal prostitution and is calling is calling poor mothers parasites and immoral for trying to get food to feed their children well the coverage is much as they expected it, especially because Ruby got to march with them, a white welfare mother from Northern Nevada with a great blonde beehive hairdo and cowboy boots named Joanna Cookie Bustamante, who testified that she had actually been told by welfare caseworkers that she should get get herself on the tax rolls and go work in the Mustang Ranch brothel across the Washoe County line. So they marched, they're in the New York Times, they're in the Washington Post, and you have for a time Breaks begin to be put on some of these cuts in welfare. Now, these folks are so poor that their welfare has not been restored yet. Here in Las Vegas, in the the place that's famous for all-you-can-eat buffets for some people, they send some nurses out to look at uh, at some of these women's kids, because the the women are claiming that their kids are suffering from these welfare cuts. the nurse from the Nevada State Welfare Bureau says, "Oh my God, they have runny sores on their legs. They're dirty. Their mothers don't take care of them." And the nurse who comes from out of state says, "You are looking at the signs of long-term malnutrition, right?" But again, these stereotypes stop you know anyone from you know seeing what's really going on. Here we have Johnny Tillman and George Wiley promising what Beulah Sanders promises in New York, and uh, what Uh, is part of what gets the welfare movement a kind of bad reputation, which is that they're promising long, hot summers, okay? So here Sanders is is Sirius Beulah Sanders, New York Welfare Rights Organization, in front of the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee with her own promise of a long, hot summer. She says, we are saying that we want to participate. Are you prepared to let us sit down and help make some laws? recalling Senator Long's outburst two years earlier in which he said that welfare made it difficult for him to find people to iron his shirts. She said the last time we tried to present our views to Congress, some people told us that we were wasting our time, that we should go home and kill the rats and roaches we were complaining about, or instead of coming here, we should take jobs, even if it was just picking up dead dogs off the streets. Democrats as well as Republicans rose from their seats to condemn Sanders for threatening violence. She cut them off, and there's a little picture I gave you in your packet of her cutting them off. The one, that I, the one that I have here didn't come out so good, so actually I cut it out. I'll leave you on Nevada Starves Children, and here's her words. The poor have brains. They're not all dumb like you think they are. This country has failed to provide us with jobs. That's the trouble. In the aftermath of the welfare rights protests, they shut down the strip twice. They uh, stormed Caesar's palace, uh, hence the title of the book. Political officials kept telling these women, you got to play within the system. Stop all this direct action. Stop all this kind of protest. And so they begin to read the regulations in the War on Poverty Laws. And they say, okay, we're going to play within the system. In Las Vegas, they create something called Operation Life. I'll tell you, I know more about that than the Brooklyn Women's Action Center. But in Brooklyn, there is a similar organization created. You can read a book by Teresa Funicello called The Tyranny of Kindness, which talks about, she was a participant, and she talks about the Brooklyn Welfare Action Center. But what the women in Las Vegas do is they address the first issue, which is that the west side of Las Vegas in 1972 had never had a single medical facility. And so they begin to look at grants. And one of the things that Beulah Sanders tells Ruby Duncan is that there's a program called Early Periodic Screening and Diagnostic Testing that's part of the War on Poverty legislation. And what EPSDT says is, if you screen children for an illness, you find out they have it, the federal government will pay for them to be treated. So Operation Life decides they want to try to get an EPSDT contract in their neighborhood. Well, the problem, of course, is that the state doesn't want to give them the EPSDT contract. The states often didn't even want to take these programs that the federal government had created. Welfare mothers had to sue in 17 states to release the money for the women and infant children nutrition program that came out of all these revelations of malnutrition, for the food stamp program, for the school lunch and breakfast programs. All of those were brought to schools and neighborhoods in poor parts of the country through continued activism. But ultimately, these women were able to get money to open the Operation Life Medical Clinic. They got doctor volunteers, and you know, in a moment of glory, here we have Alversa Beals welcoming people to the opening of the Operation Life Welfare Clinic. It is in a rehabbed hotel that they rehab through sweat equity on the old segregated black side of town um, where black performers like Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis used to stay um, when they played the strip because they weren't allowed to sleep there until 1965. Uh, and they rehab the building and they open up this clinic. Now the clinic functions on volunteer labor. They get public health physicians. As you can see, the paneling. This is an old hotel room, right? That they're that they're screening and uh, testing children in. And one of the things the women find too is that there's money in the welfare regulations and the war on poverty regulations to hire welfare mothers to be screeners. The women go into a hospital, the hospital's originally opened a three hours on public transportation from their neighborhood, the first EPSDT hospital. They eventually are able to open one in their neighborhood, but one of the things they find when they go into that hospital is that they're hiring housewives to do the screenings. Six weeks of trainings could do basic height, weight, vision, tongue depressors, you know, basic screenings that would send them to the next level um, of medical care so one of the things they find is they can get jobs they can get jobs as school lunch aides, they can get jobs as medical screeners and they do this is actually a public health nurse not one of the mothers but this is the operation life clinic outreach team essie henderson mary wesley joanne little a bunch of the mothers alversa beals they go around in in dorothy Jean Poole's old station wagon seems like a you know maybe just a nice way to keep some women busy. These women end up bringing to their clinic and screening a, high, a higher percentage of eligible children than any federally funded pediatric clinic in the country. So much so that Casper Weinberger, later Reagan Secretary of Defense, then the Secretary of, uh, Office of Econom- HEW, Health and Education and Welfare, he was Office of Economic Opportunity, says to New York and California and Illinois, what are you doing wrong? Why can't you do this? To which the mothers answered, it's really simple. We care about the children. There are kids. And so they begin to develop a slogan about the welfare system. We can do it and do it better. We can run it ourselves. We should run it ourselves. And they begin to develop an idea of economic development through social service delivery. Right? They're going to start to, they're going to they're going to start to get themselves off welfare by taking care of the poor, by taking care of the kids in their own communities. Duncan comes to the attention of national figures. There she is standing behind Coretta Scott King in 1976. They go to Washington and they lobby for the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill. And the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill says it's the right of every American to have a job. And look at all those things that need doing. Now by the time it's finally passed, it's plenty watered down. But, but this idea is that there's plenty that needs doing and that the federal government can be the ones to do it, to to hire people to deliver services. Duncan and Operation Life get money to build houses, right? And there are similar kinds of projects all across the country, including New York, but most community development corporations are not run by welfare mothers themselves. That's the truly remarkable thing about Operation Life A, that it's run by welfare mothers themselves, and B, it's success. So they're building houses. They're rehabbing houses in Las Vegas to make them more energy efficient, to put solar collectors on the ceilings, to prevent crime. President Carter appoints Ruby to the President's Commission on Families. She's the first single mother to be appointed to a President's Commission on Families. There's a lot of backlash, but in the end, This idea of community economic development takes hold and is something that continues to this day. Community development corporations become, if community action programs become controversial because they're seen as subsidized revolution, organizing people to fight back against the government, the hand that feeds them, community development corporations become essential. So much so that after Hurricane Katrina when George Bush attempts to zero out money for Um, community development corporations, it's actually moderate Republicans, Susan Collins of Maine, Norm Coleman of Minnesota, who fight him. So, what's the story here? Teresa Funicello talks about it in Tyranny of Kindness. I talk about it in this book. The big question is, can you take poor people, give them a community service project to run, give them the run of the social welfare system, and in that way alleviate the worst effects of poverty? Or, as these women were seen to be by the end of the second Bush administration, is it nepotism? Is it, is it waste? Is it fraud to allow people with no degrees to be running? Uh, Operation Life was the biggest employer in West Las Vegas by the 1970s, courtesy and part of the CEDA program. They had 100 employees. They were channeling $7 million a year through the neighborhood, they were running the WIC program, they developed, these are women sometimes with very little education who figured out how to you know, calculate the monies that they were taking in for the WIC program. Is this, a, is this a solution or is it a fraud? And I think that's one of the questions that you know, that when I've talked about this with students really provokes a great discussion. You know, This is bottom up, right, 1,000 points of light, Right? George, George Bush and Ruby Duncan agree that, you know, you should be doing things from the grassroots up, not from the top down. But is this model, is this a viable model? Is it a viable model in Brooklyn where, you know, certain neighborhoods have more people than the whole state of Nevada had when they were doing that? Right? Is it a viable model in, you know, in California, Illinois, and New York that between them have 40% of the welfare caseload in the whole country?